0: Kia ora. My name is Jade Gray and welcome to the Asia Hustle Podcast. This is the podcast that provides New Zealand businesses deep, up to the minute insights into the complex Asian marketplaces through first hand accounts from the business people and thought leaders in the midst of all the action. Welcome to Asia Hustle. This is the last show in the first season. And today we're going to shake things up. This is really by necessity because we are expecting our first baby which is actually overdue and we need to get a episode in the vault to ensure that we could reach our target of 10 episodes for the season. So it's a pre-recorded show and we don't want to take the risk of any issues around interview timing and editing with a newborn on the way. The format today is going to be a monologue and I'm looking to distill the three key themes that I've picked up in my interviews over the last nine weeks. Um, I plan to throw in an audio bite, uh, the one that really represents the sentiment across all the shows on the matter, and then come in with some color on the back of that, uh, drawing on some of the readings and opinions and discussions I've had on these issues over the last couple of months. So we're going to dive into three themes. The first is around the deteriorating U.S.-China relations. The second is around the digitization uh, of the Asian economies. And the third is how New Zealand can build on its growing reputation as the world's safest country. So first off, let's hear from former Trade Negotiation Minister Philip Burden on the U.S.-China relations.
1: The reality that America has... um moved from a sympathetic response uh, pre-2008 to a uh, increasing uh, antagonistic adversarial uh, response to China and all things Chinese at every level. So, I mean, I background that simply because the trading reality we now have is that we have a two-way trade of some 30 billion with specifically China and uh, only 7 billion with the United States we have China in its own way becoming increasingly global in its uh, trade policies, albeit still, of course, certainly protectionist and uh, careful to preserve its own interests as and where necessary, with a degree of protection that is certainly not committed to free trade in the way that, for the sake of the argument, New Zealand is. But the counterweight is that you have an American first mentality that is clearly increasingly and aggressively. Protectionist. So I simply seen set to make it very clear that I think New Zealand must be strategically exceptionally careful not to take sides. It must respect the reality that China has legitimate strategic and economic interests in the Asia Pacific region. That whereas we continue to, of course, respect our relationship with the United States, we certainly don't take sides, and we respect the right of um, PRC. To uh, engage and involve in the region and to obviously be treated as a uniquely important trading partner for New Zealand and very much part of our future economically and frankly otherwise
0: the key element is that we need to appreciate that China is a power that is here to stay for twenty five years in China all I've heard from China Hawks is that China is about to collapse China is weak in various sectors that a single party leadership uh, will collapse. And it's never happened. I don't see it happening in my lifetime. And what I think is really important is that we need to have a policy that builds and capitalizes on all the hard work done over the last four or five decades. But secondly, we need to have a diversification strategy and like any prudent enterprise, not relying on one source of revenue. For us, uh, that needs to be spread out across other markets in Asia and obviously uh, throughout other global markets. Uh, but for the scope of this show, obviously a huge need for us to continue pursuing our trade interests in other markets. Um, but to throw out you know the baby with the water in regards to uh, China is just insanity, and on top of the the pressures of the COVID situation, already on the new Zealand economy, that would just compound it beyond measure. As we're seeing uh, with Australia, there's very, I think, little loyalty in this U.S. administration. Uh, and despite all of the pro-American policy support the Australians have been doing over, you know, over generations, and, and especially in the last few years in regards to China, that can be negated very quickly, as we've seen with Secretary of State Pompeii's remarks regarding just cutting off Australia. Uh, of the Victoria-Huawei infrastructure issue. So I think we just need to be aware that this is not a binary zero-sum game and New Zealand needs to navigate a very deft touch with its diplomacy on this issue. But it needs to come back to a multilateral stance and supporting all of the international bodies from WHO, WTO, United Nations. I think the most insightful commentary on this critical issue uh, that I've listened to in the recent uh, months has been from the ex-ambassador to the United Nations uh, for Singapore, uh, Kishore Mahbubani, who was also the president of the United Nations Security Council uh, in 2001. He gives an incredible, nuanced, insightful opinion on this matter um, and offers a lot of hope um, that there is absolutely no reason uh, why China and US need to go down a path of escalating conflict. So I'll put in the show notes one key change in the relationship uh, has been for the last 40 years, what's really dictated China's international diplomatic strategy has been around the concept of hide and bide, uh, which really was Deng Xiaoping's mantra uh, in regards to international relations and trying to gain strength for China, keep out of any sensitive conflicts with other nations until it was strong enough to some could argue, stand up um, for itself on those issues. What we're going to see now is a lot more, I think, aggressive, robust, confrontational Chinese strategy, which has been forced upon it uh, with the COVID crisis and what has been turned wolf warrior diplomacy by the mainstream media in China. I think that the matter at the core of the issue for China has been the long-held pain of what the Chinese would call 100 years of shame. Uh, which was brought about from the opium wars and the handing over of Hong Kong, Macau uh, to Western forces. And at the handover uh, in 97, there was torrential rain, uh, a typhoon as such, uh, when the PLA came into Hong Kong uh, at the handover and John Zemin uh, very pointedly commented that the rain was washing away 100 years of Chinese shame. And we cannot underestimate uh, the emotion attached to that issue As a result, the determination and resilience of the Chinese people when Western powers, rightly or wrongly, apply hard and soft pressure on China. I think it is absolutely key uh, to understanding the lens in which China views these issues and how it approaches its diplomatic strategy. So rightly or wrongly, that is, I believe, how the Chinese see it. And we need to be aware of those emotive issues. Uh, to ensure that we can navigate to the best outcome uh, for New Zealand uh, economy and our exporters, a second theme that we 've seen uh, throughout Asia has been the uptake of digitization and we 're going to hear from Claire Wilson uh, who is nzt 's regional director for East Asia, to comment on this mega trend
2: I think we have to play where we currently are right so absolutely there 's a play about how do we um provide a platform for new entrants. But where we have companies that are working with partners, whether it be Lazada or in, in, uh in Korea, for example, how do we partner in a way that we can get better brand presence uh, online. So I think that that's, and that could happen, is happening actually to be fair uh, already. I think there's a whole social marketing, social media play uh, across the board. And obviously um, there's, uh, I think NZ Inc has, or the the embassies have incredible um, followers or friends on Facebook. So continuing to drive a number of our brand messaging uh, through that platform, which is already well established. But then I think there's, there's is a whole learning piece around the cost to, to, for online because, it, you know, it's seen as a relatively cheap option and, and, and often it's not. You know, there is, you know, as soon as you go down search engine optimisation, that can be a big black hole. So I think it's us getting alongside, um, probably more so than we have in the past, partnering with our companies around what this can mean in their markets, because they're all quite different. Uh, it certainly is a homogenous approach to online uh, in our market. Some are further advanced, uh, some are totally digital. It, it really depends on the market and, and in terms of the uptake. Um, in certain markets where you might have an aging, pop- aging population uh, that are really interested in that premium, um, nutraceutical space, um, online may not be the platform. So I think it's actually been far more purposeful about what are the products, who's the audience, how do we get to them, and where does digital play in that. Um, and in most, it's going to play in some shape or form, but I think it really is quite dependent on the product or service.
0: I've had a couple of uh, F&B groups up in China, and one was very focused on delivery online business model. The second was more of a restaurant diner model, and the restaurant diner model has been absolutely decimated. Uh, and you know we're really um, fighting for our lives in that space. Yet the online delivery model um, has gone gangbusters, and uh, we're actually above year-on-year on last year, which is you know pretty unheard of for most of the F&B sector. So. It's really given us um, two legs to stand on. And now that restaurant sales are coming back on tap, uh, that business, the first, is looking, is looking very strong. So it does provide resilience as well as uh, a second revenue model during the good times. Um, so that is another you know, key reason why, uh, whilst New Zealand's export companies uh, need to be doubling down on the digital space. When we look at digitization and the revenue models in Asia, the big themes coming through has definitely been the, I guess, the resurgence of e-commerce uh, that had gone through many thought kind of through its best days. Um, that's come back very strong with people obviously being isolated. Uh, the continued growth of the social commerce space uh, with live streaming and and uh, platforms like TikTok and whatnot. Uh, you've got the new retail model, which really does the online, offline experience. And that is really leading the way for any bricks and mortar business in terms of how they're going to interact and engage with uh, consumers going forward. And obviously, there's the whole entertainment space, uh, from gaming to um, on-demand content, uh, which you know continues to build momentum. And then e-learning and e-tourism. Uh, what does that look like? And these are models that are going to be having a lot of R&D thrown at them in the next um, year or two as traditional in-person revenue streams dry up. The third issue we want to discuss is around New Zealand's growing reputation as the most trusted, safest nation in the world. Let's get some insights from Lucas Speech, a Kiwi based in South Korea.
3: The, the clean and green image of, of New Zealand definitely shines through in situations where people are worried about their health. Um, especially invisible stuff like the coronavirus, right? Where people really just don't know, and are willing to pay a premium for trust, and I think a premium for for reliability. And I think New Zealand's done a lot of work on traceability of product, on um, on stuff that's just given given product a little bit more of a um, a backstory rather than just what you see on the, on the, printed on the package. Um, and I think this is something that you know is a credit to to the whole of the New Zealand export sector. Um, and, 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 you know, goes hand in hand with the fact that, um, you know, when, when people visit a company's website, what I heard was that the second most visited page on a website is the About Us page. So they'll check out the front page and then they'll check out the, who, who they're doing business with or who, who are the actual people behind something. I think this is something that, you know, it's a, it's a slow burn, it's a long invest, but it's something that I would definitely encourage, uh, you know, Kiwi businesses to keep doing. And to really um, try and build that credibility and try and build that trust.
0: Now with COVID, it's just really ramped up the upside of this reputation and this capability that we have in New Zealand. This is at the heart of uh, New Zealand's offering to the world and always has been. Uh, We've always scored very highly in the international uh, transparency Uh, of governance and and the corruption rankings, typically number one or two with Norway. Uh, We've most recently become the easiest country in the world to start a new business, and that is largely due to just inherent trust of uh, the process. What really does it for me in regards to this uh, trust-slash-safety issue is just from a business point of view, we are tapping into a lot stronger motivation in regards to demand. Traditionally, New Zealand uh, has been moving more and more towards what I would describe in you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, structure towards self-actualization, self-esteem of you know, tourism, of taking photos in New Zealand and look where I am and look what I'm doing amazing. This is great. I can afford New Zealand wine. Um, a lot of it's been around premiumization of our goods and services. COVID has thrown that on its head. We're now really the premiumization is around physiological needs. Trusted food and water, safety and security—you know everything from health to uh, education to family family needs and for government social stability, etc. So that's really where the money is going to be, and that's where the value add can be for a country like New Zealand that can really capitalize on this uh, increasing awareness and willingness to spend on these fundamental needs. From talking to the guests. Obviously, the, the, the easy big one right now, low-hang fruit is around produce, not just the produce itself, but the IP and the services that go around producing that you know, highly trusted food and beverage. There's a huge opportunity here. Um, how do we package this? How do we protect it? How do we sell it into these markets? Because we're going to see an incredible amount of fiscal spending uh, by these very large economies to up their food security, potentially increase their own food productions as they have felt, I guess, at risk and vulnerable um, with the amount they've relied on imports of food. Uh, in the same way, I think the, the West has found the same with medical and pharmacy uh, ingredients and products um, coming out of China. So, you know, New Zealand has a huge opportunity here and um, how to leverage that and become a real leader in taking them on that journey. In terms of B2C, uh, the obvious ones of, you know, all our food and beverage, but we've also got other categories around nutraceuticals, uh, which has got a huge upside and and a great, you know, to build on this whole wellness boom that we're seeing around the world. There's also an opportunity around the move towards plant-based foods, and that was happening well before COVID, but, you know, everything uh, I read and, and the people I speak to in the space around Asia, they're just saying how they've never had such large demand and they can't keep up with it. Um, there's been a I think, a huge uh, hit to the trust of meat, uh, whether we like that or not, as a major meat exporter, um, and especially around you know, wet markets and the like. Um, so people are looking for alternative protein in their diet that they feel is more trustworthy and definitely plant, and you could argue uh, cultivated meat protein could be a, a huge solution there and something which New Zealand could really jump on, um, given our incredible uh, history and experience around ag tech, biotech, and horticulture. So you know, a great opportunity there if we can pivot in that direction. This brand of trust can be leveraged you know, more than just across food products and traceability and whatnot across every sector. And so you know, tourism, as we've talked about in New Zealand's, tourism will bounce back. I think it's going to bounce back stronger than ever. And one would hope that we're going to go for a more premium or ultra-premium uh, clientele in uh, that reimagination to really take the pressure off our um, ecology, uh, but also our, our infrastructure, which really has been um, battling um, in recent years to cope with the numbers. Um, so, yeah, when we hear guys like James Cameron come back and step off the plane, and one of his first tweets uh, was, and quote, we feel we're coming back to the safest place in the world. I mean, that carries a huge amount of great equity, having these kind of absolute ambassadors for our country, pushing that story Uh, naturally, organically, across um, the key uh, media channels um, has a huge upside if we can really encapsulate that and and leverage that. Education, looking at, you know, parents are going to be very reluctant in Asia to send their children to to the US. The images on, on, whether it was from the handling of the COVID uh, across the the states or rather the mishandling of the the crisis uh, to the recent riots, and that stuff will be etched in the brain's And the minds of Asian parents. And I think the American education system is going to take an absolute beating on the back of that. And New Zealand's well placed um, to, again, to be the safest place to send your children abroad. I think the great thing about this um, trusted, safest uh, reputation is it plays well into our inherent strengths and also future opportunities, um, especially in regards to our clean, green image. Uh, The 100% New Zealand, pure New Zealand campaign has been absolutely uh, one of the great. Uh, branding exercises uh, of New Zealand's history. And if we can build on that, and in particular to our commitments and you know, necessity around climate change, uh, because we need to find a way to build a sustainable, regenerative economy that continue to show growth and provide prosperity and stability for all New Zealanders, but at the same time create solutions and mitigate the risks of climate change. And this really plays into both of those. There is not a conflict between economic growth and our environmental protection and um, if we can be smart our strategic thinking, uh, especially during this time of a massive fiscal uh, spending and the the recent budget and there's a lot of money um, still to be uh, i guess accounted for or deployed it's actually absolutely imperative to protecting that brand of New Zealand of safe secure green uh, sustainable which has a huge impact on our export sector you know there's a a pretty smart comment going around, which is climate change won't be solved with a vaccine. And uh, I think whilst we need to obviously uh, focus on the immediate uh, recovery and response to the COVID crisis, uh, we'd be missing a great opportunity if we were not focusing on the rebuild and also positioning ourselves to face what clearly is going to be the next big challenge for New Zealand and any global economy on the back of this, which is to resolve It's issues around carbon and climate change. Thanks for listening. Uh, I was pretty reluctant to do a monologue, to be honest, but I did feel that we'd covered so much ground uh, in the last two months. Um, In order to have something really tangible, it'd be great to distill it, simplify it, and just reiterate the key messages, which hopefully you can take away, if nothing else, from the last nine episodes uh, as you guys move forward on your journey to not just recover, Um, but to smash it up in Asia and become stronger uh, than ever before, which really is the hope, I think, of the export recovery. And I've got zero doubt that if we can continue to have open, honest dialogues, um, share information, support each other in our industries, uh, then we've got a huge opportunity. In terms to next steps, we're going to take a breather. And I'm going to focus on the birth of our first child, which uh, still is not here, but can't be far away. Um, so that'll really take up my time uh, in the next few weeks. And at the end of that first, I guess, push on the on the home front, uh, we'll come back and revisit uh, Age Hustle and decide which way we want to take it. But I really want to offer a huge thanks to you all for tuning in, um, taking time out of your day uh, during this you know, nothing but, I guess, chaotic time um, and giving us your support whether it's through texts, phone calls, emails, uh, online messages, comments. Uh, It's been really, really uh, heartwarming to to read and and keep us going. Um, Secondly, wanna thank our guests uh, for taking the time and and really sharing with us their insights. And last but not least, a massive thanks to my partner, Kerry Lim, who at 39 weeks, 40 weeks pregnant, uh, has continued to edit, critique, post, and uh, correct uh, all of my failures uh, in the digital world. Um, So massive thanks to her and uh, keep hustling. We'll catch you soon.